Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Going on five years at the end of February. Um, be sure to check out all of our content. We have a backlog going back, uh, you know, tons of different topics, tons of different episodes. If this is the first time you have stumbled upon us, you are in for a treat. Uh, go to focuscompound.com to get access to everything that we do. You could click the podcast tab. Our backlog is there. Uh, there's blog posts going all the way back to 2004 or 2005 from Jeff. And of course, if you're interested in learning about our money management services, you can reach out to me at andrewatfocusedcompounding.com. Of course, the best place to get everything that we put out into the investing universe is by following me on Twitter at Focused Compound. All of the information is down in the description. So in today's podcast, we could start off by talking about the major news that has come out since we last recorded, which was about two or three days ago. We are recording a few days earlier today, um, and that's the jobs report. And I like talking about macro because it's a topic of conversation that's on a lot of individuals' minds uh, currently, especially with interest rates and inflation. And I think what a lot of investors can do, even if you don't invest from a top-down perspective or with a top-down perspective, is to pay attention because I truly believe you are gaining valuable experience, you know, 10, 15, 20 years of experience within a very short period of time. Because really since 2020, the markets have been crazy. And then even before that, the previous bull market, uh, there's just a lot going on. So paying attention is great. And it's fun to talk about on the podcast, even if you don't invest with a top-down perspective. Uh, and really, we do a two-hour show. So, I mean, what do you expect of us? But the jobs report came out and showed an increase of 517,000 jobs in January, Jeff. Uh, the estimate was 187,000 jobs. Uh, the unemployment rate fell to 3.4%. And the estimate was 3.6%. And that is the lowest jobless level since May of 1969. And yields took off when this news came out. Uh, the market pulled back a little bit. I think it caught a lot of investors by surprise. And it's interesting timing because of the Fed meeting that took place on Wednesday. It seemed like they were taking a victory lap in a way that inflation is on its way down. The market took a lot of what was communicating during that meeting and went running as if, you know, inflation's coming down and eventually it's going to be time to, I guess, stop uh, being in restrictive territory with interest rates and maybe we'll be back to a risk on market. I'm not entirely sure, but I'm kind of curious, Jeff, to hear your thoughts. Does this sort of strengthen the soft landing argument, right? If you want to look at both sides of it, strengthen the soft landing argument but also put the Fed in a more challenging position from the perspective of a tight labor market, 
meaning higher wages uh, and a higher wages in a tight labor market is not what the Fed wants to see right now uh, to really bring inflation down. So I'm just kind of curious to hear your perspective, like from the context of the Fed and the history of the Fed and what they set out to do, which is bringing the inflation down to their 2% target. Does this kind of throw a wrench in, you know, the whole victory lap of inflation coming down? Uh, do you think the chance of a reignition of inflation is high? What are your thoughts on this? Well, Powell talked about how most of the price uh, measure that they prefer to use, is, a little bit over 50% of it, is basically non-housing services stuff. So goods, uh, they could expect that to come. To, I mean, it has been coming down a lot, and they could expect that to be you know under control in the future, even if it's higher than it is right now, that it's slightly inflating or it's fairly flat. And housing, they can have a big effect on, right? But the only way they can have an effect on non-housing services in the United States is going to be through uh, the unemployment rate. And as we talked about, it's very low and they have a lot of job openings versus the amount of um, people available to take those jobs. So that's the problem that they've had for a while. Um, the... I mean, any one report is likely to be an outlier, you know, especially if you have it anytime you have a surprise that's large, it probably means that that single month is, you know, it's, it's going to be a little exaggerated. Um, so, but they'll go off of like using several months in a row. Um, I guess that's the bigger issue to think about is, you know, whether you could have inflation go back up again. Um, having inflation be very low when you're in a recession is not, uh, you know, dropping a lot is not a big deal. Uh, it's not something to really think that much about. It's not a surprise. So we were pretty close at the end of last year in terms of the sort of things that really matter for GDP, just like final, uh, real final sales, um, to being completely flat. So you had some things building in like inventory and stuff like that. But we're pretty close to recession anyway. And when you are pretty close and you're coming off a very high inflation, it's not a surprise to have it come down a lot. Um, as you showed there, the last time the unemployment rate was this, was this low was in 1969. And that was a situation there over the next 12 years or so where uh, each time there was a recession, inflation did come down a lot. But uh, each recession, the inflation rate bottomed out at a higher level than it had the previous cycle. And in each boom, it topped out at a higher level, right? And so that's what they kind of want to avoid. Um, they seem to be much more aware of that, or Powell seems to be much more aware of that, much more focused on that than the market. That's where he talked about kind of the disconnect between what they're thinking and what the market is thinking. The other thing I've mentioned before is there is this rule, um, statistically, that you know um, the Fed has never succeeded in raising unemployment by a small amount without raising it by a large amount. So they're already penciling in like four and a half percent unemployment in terms of their dot plot stuff. And they've also kind of, that's the estimate for what the um, rate of inflation that we're uh, rate of unemployment where inflation wouldn't be accelerating would be at. And so if you believe those things, that means that they now have to raise unemployment by a little over 1%. 
And it's very hard for them to do that without raising it by a lot more than 1%. Um, do you think that rule is true? Historically, it's been true. And there's also a possibility that it's harder this time than it was in the 1969 to 81 period because uh, the sticky parts of inflation are a more significant part of the economy and the goods parts and the housing part um, generally in terms of its contribution now is is lower. Now, housing as a balance sheet item is pretty big in the United States, but the actual amount of construction, all that's not that big. So it may have been easier around the early 80s to bring those things down because things like goods can come down really fast and things related to housing can come down really fast. But they didn't even then make a huge dent in the non-housing services stuff. That's not something that the Fed can have a very direct influence on. And um, you may have to really do a lot of damage to other parts of the economy to try to get that to be transmitted through there into the parts that you care a lot about. So if you saw where the jobs were, right, if you have them in things like leisure and hospitality, the Fed has very, very little ability to influence um, activity in that kind of sector. And why is that? Because it mostly works through housing. I mean, mm -hmm. it works through financial conditions and those financial conditions really work through housing and housing related things. So housing, everything that you put in the house when you move and all that auto, a lot of things that are tied to all of that, it really doesn't have a big effect on people going out to um, eat, people going to movie theaters, people going to theme parks, people doing all sorts of things like that. Um, and even things that are pretty discretionary, you know, they, they don't have a big influence on that. And, and, um, that is kind of an issue. You've seen that in terms of um, like what stocks have been down ahead of other things. Um, so things that are tied to manufacturing stuff have been really weak. Manufacturing is basically in a recession in terms of like what the leading indicators and all of that are. Um, but that isn't necessarily a very big part of the U.S. economy. So that doesn't mean that you'll necessarily have uh, low inflation for people for most of the things that they do because of that. Um and then, you know, you could really hurt housing a lot, but you have to hurt it a lot to be able to trickle into other parts of the economy. So um, we had all the ad agencies have been, you know, reporting in the last quarter um, and end of last year and predicting this quarter and everything. And their organic growth was really strong. It's some of the highest. I mean, it's the highest they've had since 2006, I would say, as a group. And um, that is, you know, sort of like the period we talked about in the 70s high organic growth because of that, because you have kind of high nominal levels of um, growth. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much influence that you can have on something like that. And that's the kind of thing that's a good indicator of what we're talking about. Now, sticky inflation stuff that I've talked about before, you know, is definitely not a leading indicator. It's really a trailing sort of thing, but it is more reliable that it'll stay at the same level for a longer period of time. And I think there's a difference between sort of the cyclical things and the more uh, underlying levels of inflation that are more secular or whatever you want to call them. I don't think people are wrong or the market is wrong in thinking that cyclical inflation um, measures are coming down a lot, but they came down a lot at various points in the seventies. And, um, and the parts that we talk about in terms of the overall level of inflation. So if you think about, Say, say you think that normal was like 1965 or something before all of this happened in the 70s. Um, in the 80s and 90s, you then had a higher average level of inflation in a lot of things. So it continued for decades at a higher level. Now, it was a lower level and an acceptable level to people who lived through the inflation of the 70s, but it did average a higher level than it presumably would have. 
for decades after that. And that sort of thing is a potential problem, obviously. Do you think polling the whole Paul Volcker would be the only way to get inflation down to their 2% target? Or is this more of a let everything work through the system because so much of it was supply driven and we just got to wait and see what happens? I'm not sure. Um, I mean, supply in terms of labor, which is what's causing this, is not something that changes really rapidly. And so that is an issue that you might have to deal with for a long period of time. Um, I also, though, don't know about whether it is... They talk about higher for longer, and I think that makes more sense than how mm -hmm. deeply you invert the yield curve and things like that. So as long as you keep financial conditions really tight, um, then I'm not sure we have a lot of experience with knowing how tight is too tight, like how far to push things. But it does suggest that you would have to keep them at those levels for longer. The issue in previous cycles and in a lot of countries that have had inflation issues, it seems to be more not that they didn't go far enough, but that they were too quick to um, lower rates when they when they seem to be heading for a recession, um, that they weren't willing to accept sort of recessions and let them go for a while. And uh, I don't know how you could have really rapid and unacceptable levels of growth if you continue to have like an inverted yield curve and tight financial conditions and all that. So if you maintain that for a really long period of time, I think you could probably deal with whatever happens. The issue is that they've normally been very fast to cut when they know that they're in a recession like much faster to cut than to raise. Now, this time they raised rates really rapidly. And like you said with Volcker, that was one time where they raised them really rapidly. But normally the increases are much more gentle than what the decreases look like. So like what you saw in the 2000s, right, is more common. We have this constant pattern of slowly increasing rates. And then you hit a financial crisis and you drop them all the way down to zero, right? Or what happened with COVID a few years before that, they're raising rates a little bit. And then um, COVID happens, and right, and COVID happens, and they're instantaneously dropping them. Um, so that's Why the do you issue think that here. Is? Do you think that a lot of that has to deal with just the political influence or the incentives that are there? Uh, I, I don't think that they want to have recessions. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's realistic, but that I, if you listen to the way the Fed talks and central banks talk, they do act as if it is possible through monetary policy to not have meaningful recessions. Um, and that might almost, I, I don't think that's really possible, but it might be close to being possible if, if you were, um, if you were set the, the policy at the right rate all the time, otherwise. Right. Um, but there's a lot of things that get kicked into um, sort of a feedback loop in both directions when you have very easy policy or when you have very tight policy. And so it's not crazy to want to lower rates a lot when those things start to happen. Because like if you're seeing more of a decline in housing than you want to see or something, it takes a pretty big response to change things once that starts happening. Um, and this is probably a bigger issue for other countries besides the United States, actually. Um, the U.S. has way less um, debt related to housing things, way less debt in, um, it's, I mean, it has very strong 
balance sheets and things in the financial system and with households as compared to other countries. And it doesn't have really highly inflated assets in terms of houses. Um, where it has issues is somewhat in the corporate and then definitely in government, really federal government, not local. Um, so that's a different story. Um, but, you know, other countries, uh, I've mentioned basically other English speaking countries and the, the Scandinavian countries are what I'm talking about. They have some very high house prices and might have more exposure to that in their financial system and all of that. They often have different um, mortgage things. They're, they're less likely to have long fixed rate mortgages and they have a lot less equity in their homes right now. And their homes are really higher priced versus their earnings that, the, you know, that households really have and their ability to service that debt. So that's where it's more of an issue there than in the United States. So like the United States could see some pretty huge drops in housing that wouldn't have a big effect probably on people's behavior compared to other parts of the cycle, just, uh, you know, other cycles in the past, just because how strong people are with their um, balance sheets and how many people have a lot of equity in their houses, right? Mm-hmm. You had said that you don't think sticky price inflation is a good leading indicator, but it could be just a good thing to look at because it's um, it doesn't move around as much. It's not as volatile. I'm curious. I right. mean, are there any uh, leading indicators that you traditionally look for or keep an eye on just to kind of help you synthesize all the data out there as it relates to the economy? I think that stuff doesn't matter much to us. And I think it shouldn't matter much to the Fed. Um, mm -hmm. It gives you really, if you're trading things, it matters a lot. And there are some good ones. Um, uh, probably the best thing is like the, the cash prices for certain commodities. Um, and there's like indexes that keep track of that, but that just gives you an idea of extreme tightness and commodity things. And then the other things, the labor things that we talked about. So, um, in terms of like predicting recessions and stuff, uh, actually the profitability of businesses in general mm -hmm. is a really good indicator. So businesses, whatever they say, they tend to be that when their profits, when they start having losses or their profits are going to decline is when they fire people. And as long as profits are strong, they keep hiring, even if that doesn't make a lot of sense. That's hard to tell right now, though, because there seems to be a disconnect in the United States where the large companies that are public are having real profit problems and are expecting mm -hmm. declines. But um, many small businesses seem to be doing really well. Uh, and that's probably because of what sectors those things are in, where they're underrepresented in um, public companies. And then there's like large sections of the economy that we don't have. There's not, they're just not a big part of the public markets, but they're a very big part of private businesses. And those are the areas that are hiring a lot right now. As in like restaurants, entertainment, yeah. hospitality. Sure. So, I mean, if you think about that, like um, restaurants and hospitality stuff, I mean, it's really, really small part of the economy of the, uh, of the um, public markets, right? There, you can't think of a lot of giant restaurant companies and things like that, but it's a big part of the um, economy and a uh, really big part of like labor. Um, and then you have large parts of like goods, um, things that sell goods, for instance, sell lots of goods, things that are importing lots of things from the rest of the world and selling them, all that stuff we talk about with Walmart and Amazon and everything. That is not a big part of private businesses. There are not a lot of private businesses that are selling a lot of goods that they're importing from the rest of the world and selling in the United States and stuff. So those are things you saw during COVID that were very different. Also, not a lot of small companies that do all of the internet things that we talk about. Um, so mm -hmm. 
you know, cloud is a very meaningful part of like the Fang stuff. Cloud is nothing in terms of private um, type businesses. And that's also another part of it. Like I was looking at the advertising agencies, their mix of clients is probably very different from the mix on that we see on YouTube and Amazon and things like that. Um, I was noticing that, especially with what categories are the biggest for them versus what categories are big in public markets and what categories are probably big for Amazon, Microsoft, um, Alphabet and Meta, you know, because all of those now are getting bigger in like advertising things. And then a couple of those, of course, are big with cloud things. Um, so they probably have very different kinds of clients. Like, for instance, um, the ad agencies generally their biggest single category now is going to be like um, drugs, pharmaceutical, that kind of stuff. And then food and beverage is probably their second largest. And that together for some of them is like 30, 35 percent. Um, I don't believe that that's a very big part of the advertising that we see on. Um, so when we see Snap and Twitter and all those things, you know, Twitter's not a public company anymore, but we hear a lot about it. Um, those companies probably have very different kinds of advertising things. And I've noticed that, as I've said, I've tried to spend a lot more time watching um, free uh, stuff online which I wouldn't normally do to get an idea of what kinds of advertising there is and what it looks like and how different it is. And I have noticed that cause I've used, you know, Paramount's, uh, Amazon's, a few different ones where you can have the free versions to see how different it is. And of course YouTube, which we're on. Um, and it does seem that the client base is quite different. So like how different are the ads? I think a lot of the ads are consumer discretionary and tech that is money losing. Um, as compared to what is the clients for things like ad agencies and, and, and all of that. And also a lot of that is not just buying media, you know, those, those agencies is only part of their business. So other things would be like, um, so say like YouTube or something, right? Um, well, let's take like a, like, so we've talked about movies before. Let's take a movie example. If a movie's coming out, um, so you like you had the James Bond movie come out a while ago, right? So that's a good example because people can know, okay, there's product that's heavy in product placement. So you can kind of figure out what brands are there and stuff, right? So how that is advertised a lot. So like um, United Artists would be the the one doing the that in the US and then it's a different company in the rest of the world. Um, so what they're doing in marketing that is like going to influencers and on, on YouTube and everything and on different things on, online on Instagram and all that, but they're, it's not just like buying ads. It's going to them and trying to place the product. They're trying to get reviews of it, get it spread around. Mm -hmm. And that may not be exactly the same as like buying advertising. And I talked before too, about how quickly something shuts stuff off. Um, and that being an issue. So like, for instance, um, I know, I believe it was, I was reading Amazon mentioning what things might affect their, was it, I don't remember if it was Amazon or Microsoft, but what things affect their cloud um, and they don't like have a breakdown of exactly who their largest clients are. Some things we know a little bit because they mentioned. So for instance, it's been mentioned before crypto, which can't be a very big category for things like, you know, um, ad agencies and stuff. But the other thing that I noticed they mentioned is, uh, because it's very cyclical and so it dropped a lot too, but it has to also be fairly large for them to mention it is, um, uh, housing. So mortgage stuff, mortgage financing. And that is something that you can grow really fast and it would make sense that they would use a service like that. But another reason they would use it is not just that they're a fast growing company, both crypto and mortgage stuff, right? They might use it also because they intend to 
um, change how many people they employ really rapidly and change their IT budget and stuff really rapidly. So they know that they're somewhat cyclical and that they want to have flexibility in hiring and firing and all that. And they probably want flexibility with that for things like cloud too. So I just think a lot of those things that we see when we hear about these companies laying everybody off and everything may make us think that um, the same sorts of things are going on in a lot of the economy where really what, what Powell was talking about is almost not related to that at all. And as he was saying, that's half the, the economy really, you know, a, a good portion of it is these sorts of locally, uh, domestically at least, um, produced and consumed services by a lot of mid-sized and smaller businesses, not the giant businesses that we have and not very international and not very goods-centered. Um, and a lot of the talk about inflation is basically goods and housing, honestly. That's what that's what's come down. And so I think it was silly to get all excited about the fact that fuel prices and stuff went shooting up at one point. And I think it's kind of silly to get excited about them coming down a lot, too. It's not very meaningful. It is totally a good indicator of where you are cyclically. But I think it's a silly indicator for the Fed to worry about longer term. Um, these things often top out and then plunge really fast uh, after you do enter a recession, if you had some sort of boom. And so like in the 2006, 2007 period, you briefly had what looked like a burst of inflation, but it's not a very concerning burst of inflation because it really was not present in the sticky stuff. It was really present in the, you were cyclically overheated. Um, and so that I think that's the same sort of thing to worry about now is that if you have these things drop a lot, they can turn around really fast, right? You could imagine that if you bring rates down to zero, you'll suddenly have a uh, housing activity start up again, right? Mm -hmm. But if you go rates to zero or you go rates to eight, I don't think that that radically is going to change, you know, in terms of the, the size of your, the changes that you're making, it's not going to have as big an impact on things that are far removed from housing and autos and all that. It's just not going to have that in terms of um, the services stuff. And so that's why I said like um, that I think you could see something really different in recession in semiconductors than in airlines. So I'm not saying that airlines wouldn't have some decline in a recession, but I just don't think that they would have this huge decline that would be the biggest area to be worried about. And uh, so that's when we're talking about airlines that way. But I also think that's true with why I think it's odd how strongly, like I mentioned that Cinemark was up by an incredible amount in the last month or something. You know, um, I think that's sort of has to do with, you know, beta and what kinds of stocks people are betting on and everything more than it logically has to do with the business. Because mm -hmm. if you expect sudden easing in terms of, um, uh, uh, rates and stuff, it would make sense that Carvana goes shooting up, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's close to bankruptcy. Maybe it survives because of that and it can't survive in tight financial conditions and all that. But it doesn't make a ton of sense why there'd be a huge shift in things like movie theaters. And I don't even think in things like airlines um, that they should respond as much as things that are related to housing and to cars and all that. Yeah, so Cinemark year to date up 50%. <laughs> and in you know a month yeah and also what's odd about that of course is that marcus gets most of its ebitda from mm -hmm. um movies and i think it was up maybe five percent or something it was nothing um do you have a numbers for marcus this year to date yeah uh year to date it's up eight percent eight percent okay but it's a fairly big difference and they're very similar um so 
I think that's because Marcus is a much, I mean, it, it's pretty actively traded and stuff, but much less traded, much smaller stock. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, it's just something that you notice. I noticed that before with other companies, uh, other stocks in movie stuff where um, movie production, where if they were volatile stocks and everything, they behave more like volatile stocks uh, traded in line with them, even though the business shouldn't have reflected that way, that there shouldn't be much cyclicality uh, because th- there could be a cycle, right? And there could be things happening with it, but it's really independent of the economic cycle. Um, so like, for instance, I, I mentioned to you that there was uh, predictions from the numbers.com, which is very good for um, predicting the movie industry and their predictions, you know, because they know what movies are coming out a year in advance for virtually all of them. Um, has it up, not to the level that it was, uh, in 2018, I think was probably the peak, but they have it up another, what, 1.1 billion, one point, you know, so they've got it up over 10% or something over last year. You have the numbers right there. What was the 2022 box office? Total box office, 7.4 billion and 2023 total box office is projected to be 8.8 billion with 98 releases worldwide. Yeah, so that's a really big increase. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're expecting very flat to like no economic growth, that's a big increase. And so you can see how independent that is really. Now that might be fine that prediction comes out movie theater stocks maybe should go up in reaction to that kind of thing. But they they really shouldn't be going up in line with other sorts of stocks. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. So is you it, can just see how yeah. I was going to say, is it interesting to you, though, right, when you look at like a company like Marcus that we said is up 8% on the year, uh, Cinemark, right, is up 49%, 50% year to date, and AMC mm-hmm. is up like 56% or something crazy like that year right. to date. And really, I mean, who is the most solvent, you know, f- from a financial perspective, from a, a balance sheet perspective, who's the most, um, you know, financially stable? It's probably Marcus, Right. Oh, no, it is, Marcus. And that, that is one logical reason why it might be less responsive. The, <laughs> the most logical reason is, is credit risk. It's so right? funny to me. Like, in your, oh, the, you know, oh, it's not up as much because uh, it's actually the most solvent. Good job, Marcus. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that would make sense because if people were concerned about Cinemark's uh, creditworthiness, then the ch- changes in financial conditions, changes in the macro economy would make the most sense to um, to have stocks go up a lot. Um, that is the one thing that I think, even whether the business is very predictable, not very predictable, does make sense that it's more responsive to the appearance that credit risk is lessening, right? And so if rates kept going up, that would potentially be a problem because they borrow money and everything. Um, and Marcus, on the other hand, owns entire hotels in some cases has surplus land um de- definitely is much more um is d- much stronger that way financially um but i think it makes it cheaper relative to the other stocks to be honest i think it makes them underpriced right now but it would make sense that if your bet is sort of like you're trying to make a bet on what the next year will bring that's not the one that you would focus on so how do they run these predictions then is it based on the product that's coming out? Mm-hmm. The amount 100%. of people, like, like what type of movies, what type of people usually yep. go to these movies? Mm-hmm. So what they do is they have, I believe, 98 movies in this model. Yep. Uh, what do they say? Uh, wide releases? Yeah. So they predict everything, but you really only need the wide releases to know. And um, 
what you do is they model it for every single movie. So there's certain things that go into the model and they talk about what they are, but um, it's actually pretty good. The numbers.com is very good for its predictions of that. And it is pretty good to be able to model these things. I would compare it to being able to model like um, races in um, midterms and general elections and stuff in the United States. It's not that they're going to be hundred percent right, but this is something that's fairly easy to model as an industry versus others because you have the individual releases and then generally the stuff they're using is um, what franchise it's in. Mm -hmm. So if they know what franchise that you had an avatar before you use this avatar as a comp. The second one you use is the studio doing the releasing would be the biggest um, factor. So like this is a Disney release, you would use that. And then when you don't have a lot of information about that sort of thing, and then like when it's being released and stuff like that. But uh, when you don't have a lot of information like that, then you would also factor in um, genre more. Um, and then if you really don't have a lot of information, you'd start to factor in more, giving some weighting to who's in the movie. So, um, and then right now they're saying in their model that the only thing they're adjusting, and I talked a little bit about this, is there's now a pandemic adjustment to reduce by 20% the expected box office for any movie that they say has, they say has romantic content. But oh. otherwise, for 2023, they're not doing any reductions in the expectations for how a movie will perform now versus prior. So why they is also that have, on the romantic content? Because that's what I talked about um, when you asked. There was a question someone asked about, you know, when I changed my mind on something. I said the maybe the movies aren't coming back as strongly as I had expected. The thing that was noticeable is romantic content. And um, and that could be a larger thing about middle-aged and older women or women in general or something about that. Um, it also could be the um, that it's the kind of movie that does well anyway on streaming. Mm -hmm. And it's the kind of thing people might watch on streaming. Um so we'll have some tests of things that are aimed at women, but not romantic uh, later this year. Um, there's a couple that are aimed at very uh, uh, much older women. There's two coming out soon, and that will give us some indications on that if it um, just has to do with romantic content. But we haven't, on true blockbuster movies, there's like no need for a pandemic adjustment at all. If you look at how Avatar did, Spider-Man um, last year, some things like that. They did exactly what they would have done without a pandemic. Um, and horror has had no problem that way, right? But that's a very young, skewing audience. And it's very focused on going to the theater up front and everything. Um, so the ones that I think are interesting and harder to predict are the ones that are not just romantic comedy, but romantic adventure things, romantic, anything like that is harder. So like last year, I would say... Um, what was it called? Lost City? Lost? Uh, it was Channing Tatum and Sandra Bullock, right? So that's hard for a model anyway to predict. It has a lot of romantic content. The genre has big differences between what movies do well and what don't. And you kind of need to gauge the charisma, the the um, overall um, goodwill towards the main actors in the movie. So if you do the exact same movie, but you pick totally different people who are not as well-liked, Mm -hmm. by audiences then they don't show up the people who are going to that are saying that's a sandra bullock channing tatum movie right mm -hmm. um that's very different than spider-man spider-man it's easy to say it's a spider-man movie and based on the character batman you know any of those things and so their predictions for that are the best their predictions for others are a little harder um so 
I think that is an adjustment that's down. Um, the other thing that they've removed is they no longer have any penalties for day and date releases on streaming and movie theaters at the same time, which is interesting. We now have seen no difference based on that. But the reason for that is they're very rare now, and the only companies that are doing them are Paramount, or that we have done them recently, are Paramount and Peacock, which are not particularly strong streaming things. Um, there definitely seemed to be an effect when it was HBO and when it was uh, Disney. Okay, So those had major effects, and we saw that with a few movies that could be definitely um, blamed on that issue. But that that's interesting, too, because it means that they aren't really adjusting for those things. Uh, however, they don't expect the the market overall to get back to where it was on a per movie sort of basis until later this year. But they are projecting this year. Their original projection was like late that it would be at like 90 percent of box office for each movie in late 2021. So keep that in mind. Hmm. But there were two cycles through of covid variants since then that both brought it down after that. And that had a major effect. The other reason why the box office is lower, though, is product. And so this is the part where there's a if issue for theaters. Um, again, this year, product will be weaker overall than it would have been on a sort of a pre-COVID trend. Same thing for last year. The number of releases is pretty close to what we'd expect. Wide releases in the 90 to 100 ranges is, is normal in, in the 2010s and on it used to be much higher going back to the 90s and stuff um so that means that there's just fewer movies that are really big coming out and so that explains the rest of the gap so if you had a nine billion dollar year this year instead of um a peak at 11 point something billion i mean it was around 11 billion a lot in 2019 uh, it looks for years and years. I mean, in terms of tickets sold and stuff, it's been pretty close to that. It's just a matter of like how much um, uh, ticket price inflation is. But we've been at a pretty steady level since the mid-90s, basically. I mean, in terms of like relative to the population stuff, I would say, I don't know the exact year, but maybe around 97 or something. It was probably the peak in terms of most number of people as a percentage of the movie-going po- age population um, going to movies. Mm-hmm. And since then, it's kind of trended down a little bit mainly due to um, a reduction in the number of movies and a shift in age in the United States. The United States has aged a bit, which has a major factor uh, in it. I don't think that there's a huge difference since then. Um, 2018 was a higher year than like 2019 just because of what movies came out, and that's normal. That's yeah, what you see in video games, and yeah. Reading the highlight, it says, Best Year Ever was 2018, which brought in $11.9 billion in North America. Yep. So... But 11 to 12 billion was pretty normal for a few years there. Um, so much of the decline from what they're expecting now um, for this year compared to that is a lack of movies at certain parts of the year, especially. So the big problem this year, same as last year, is there's a huge gap in late summer. It's really like dead and it was completely dead this year. There's nothing good coming out in uh, late summer, which used to be uh, actually, the summer season used to last longer in movies than it does now. Um, So, and that's because some movies were moved and stuff. Um, The predictions that you see there, you notice that they don't have any predictions for movies making like 600, 700 million, Mm. but that's because they never predict that basically. They Mm. always have a bunch of movies that are predicted at 350 million or something, and then one or two break out in a big way. So 
I think they mentioned that in this article that probably if you have five movies, you think we'll do 300 million or something. One of them will surprise you and do 700. You know, that's just normal for a year and some will, some will bomb, but that's how you get the really big ones. So those are always outliers. Do you think these models take into account like the second and third order uh, effects of like the chicken, the egg problem of movie product, right? So you're talking a little bit about that like the reinforcing reflexivity of if you do get a $8.8 billion year or maybe a nine or a 10 and it starts to trend up that uh, companies will be encouraged to release more product because the consumer is coming back and the movie industry is on trend to getting back to the 2018 level. Yeah. So like I said, they don't do a, they're not doing like an adjustment for the pandemic like they did before. But the way they did it before is they applied to all movies a pandemic adjustment and they used an S-curve. So what they would do is they would plug in the numbers each week compared to what they expected it to be. And then they would say from that point, we're expecting it to grow like an S-curve. And what's basically happened is they've shifted their model each time out as these um, variants came. And so that pushed back a few months the expectations for the increase in that um, model there. And actually I think there's a link from that article to their uh, writing about that in, um, I think it was 2021 that they did it. Yeah. You see market strength there. Um, Mm -hmm. So they had an article that was about that idea of the S curve. And so they would feed in information all the time for that. I mean, this is something that um, whether it's AI or individuals just doing it, um, which is normally it's it's not these things don't use AI stuff normally, but it's something that AI would be good at because it's very high frequency. We get numbers each week and we get numbers for all the movies each week. And mm-hmm. you then compare that against the model. Um, so each week the numbers comes out with predictions for the week and then they have projections, which is basically mostly numbers. The distributors say what it's going to take in that week at the end of Sunday or something. They tell you what they think it's going to be. Um, and they compare the two. And so they do like the relative strength of each movie versus what it was expected to do. And, um, then that can be updated in models. So you can just, um, um, use all of that that way. Now they tweak it some all the time. And also what they'll do is they'll give you some human input of, they think that this will outperform or underperform the model. So, uh, and, and I've done that before where I look at that and then say, what, where do I think the model's weak or strong or something? So I think we talked about that. Um, I really thought that Spider-Man would be stronger than the model was predicting and mm-hmm. it was stronger. And, but, but that's not a big surprise. Cause I bet the author of the article said the same thing that things that aren't captured in the model probably were missing the likelihood that that could be really strong. Um, January was an incredibly strong month in terms of all movies outperforming the model basically there was a few things that didn't do well but everything like was slightly outperforming models and was slightly outperforming what you'd expect especially in terms of holds compared to early on um which i think has more predictive power really than just the opening weekend numbers um and that just gives stronger indications that it's good um market but it also could have something to do with the placement of the movies which is tricky because last year actually january was was pretty good um not good in terms of the product that came out exactly um but in terms of how the movies did whereas late summer was bad and late summer might be bad again it's really hard for them to predict certain things like when the quality of the movies is extremely poor because that causes two things to happen it um very poor movies 
uh, are very hard to predict. If you look at the model and what they predict, they're wildly, they can be wildly off on movies that they expect to do badly, but don't know how badly. So there was a movie that bombed recently Babylon and their model said it was going to bomb. The author of it said, you know, this probably doesn't look good, but I'm not sure exactly how bad I thought it was going to do terrible, you know, but it's really hard to tell how bad does it do only a few million? Does it do um, many times that, but it still is a failure no matter what. Um, those are really hard um, to predict. And so when we get some really weak movies like we did last year in the late summer, it's very hard to predict that. And the model can be off a lot, but it doesn't matter much to the overall box office. Um, the things that matter are the, how right it gets the bigger movies, obviously. And those are somewhat easier to predict the franchise movies, somewhat movies from big directors and, um, definitely the movies from the big studios. Um, so, you know, Babylon belongs to a category where if you look at the comps, they're kind of hard to predict. There have been some that have done okay, some that haven't. I mean, I think for Babylon, probably some of the comps would be, I don't know literally what ones they're using, but I would say um, like two I could think of were two Leonardo DiCaprio movies. This this had Brad Pitt in it. Um, two Leonardo DiCaprio movies, which were Wolf of Wall Street and um, Great Gatsby. And they're both borderline movies where they succeeded, but they have similar budgets to this movie and they could have easily not gone well. And they're kind of, um, same as this movie have a lot of, uh, excess and stuff. And like, it's a lot of the buzz around seeing these particular actors in something and kind of a lot of talk about after the first weekend. So people going, Oh, isn't that movie wild and whatever, like, you know, mm -hmm. um, but they're not in, but all those movies are not in subject matters that normally resonate with audiences. Mm -hmm. So, um, like that's what's hard about it. If you took movies about Wall Street or something, um, as your comp there, they are a lot that you've forgotten exist that didn't make any money. There's a sure. few that broke out, but you know, it's not as easy to predict. Mm -hmm. Um so the 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 movies that did really well though is just in general <laughs> there there weren't a lot of failures of like um there's a horror movie um what was it? Megan or, you know, um, and there was, um, a man called Otto, um, and a few of those, which are better tests because we haven't had as many tests of those genres and how they held. Um, but also, you know, Puss in Boots, um, and Avatar mm -hmm. both held very well compared to what they had done in the past. Like Avatar is now way outperformed what this model thought and stuff. Although it's slightly underperformed the last Avatar in terms of how it held, and slightly outperformed Titanic, but it's outperformed almost in terms of from, uh, if you click on the avatar one, I can show you the, um, the chart there, which is very useful. So that chart uses the opening weekend and then plots a, um, confidence, uh, level, which is a 95% confidence level, which is that shaded area that 95% of movies should end up between the bottom and top of that. As mm. you can see, avatar ended up outside of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And although they took into account the other James Cameron movies and everything, um, the, the holds for avatar over time are so big. The movie has so, so much, uh, legs, you know, um, over time as people go and watch it compared to how it does in the opening weekend. So a lot of press was like the opening weekend wasn't amazing or something, but actually James, it was the best for James Cameron. Basically his movies, Titanic avatar, people forget they finished with a lot of money, but they don't open with numbers like a Marvel movie. Why is that? Like Just because the type of movies he's putting out or what, mm -hmm. what is that? 
So one, the franchise isn't as big. Uh, it's not as it's you know Avatar mm-hmm. is not Spider Man. Spider Man's yep. the most popular character that there is you know IP in the United States right now. Um, Avatar is not that. Titanic wasn't that. Um, it's a huge gap between the time for people going to it, and so they have to be told it's a good movie. If if they don't think it's a good movie, uh, then a lot of people won't go to it, and it doesn't have as much of a built-in audience on the first weekend. Um, so th- those movies end up making a lot of money over time, and they used to, Hollywood used to make a lot more movies that had performances like this. Um, all the biggest movies of all time have numbers that perform like this. Usually there's a couple of recent ones that don't, um, the very biggest Marvel movies, um, just open so big and then drop off fast. But you know, most of the really big movies of the past have performances like that. It's very hard for it to drop off suddenly. Um, and the Puss in Boots one was a good example because these family movies had, had some really weak ones since the pandemic. And this was one area where I said, I don't remember I said on the podcast, but Romantic was one issue, and the other one was possibly these family movies, these uh, animated movies and things that what had been Pixar and DreamWorks, and um, whether they will not perform as they did in the past um, because of the attraction of streaming them, and maybe also because, uh, now Puss in Boots is not a Disney movie, but also maybe that a lot of families that would have them have streaming and watch things that way. So maybe you're eating up a lot of your audience that way. Disney uh, Strange World did terribly. It was, you know, the worst performance for a Disney animated movie in, um, I don't know, 30 years or something, you know, some incredibly long time. They've only had a few that did that badly when you adjust for inflation. Um, so that actually did well compared to its opening weekend. And there were some that were weak that way. So I would agree with the model that says that romantic content is the only one that you need to adjust for right now. At the moment, we don't see a problem with... Um, those animated family movie type things, um, they're holding up better now. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the last, I, yeah. uh, on the last podcast, we had spoken about Buffett's investment in Occidental and how the valuation of the business and the fundamentals of the business lined up pretty perfectly with his thoughts uh, on the industry from like a supply and demand um, perspective. I'm curious to hear your thoughts, you know, on the movie industry in general and using that backdrop to, a potential investment case for a company like Marcus or Cinemark. I guess we could throw AMC in there, even though I know that's not even mm-hmm. in the uh, realm of possibilities, but just basically how you would think about it as an investment, if you would, if not, and uh, you know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. Um, I think that the there's a few issues. So... One is the behavior of studios, and that's still somewhat concerning to me. Um, the movies have held up better in some ways than you might think because like the amount of um, programming for streaming. Now, a lot of it is like shorter content, shorter seasons and things for TV series and everything, but the actual number of movies and um, series and stuff going into streaming stuff is really high and has gone up a lot in the last 10 years. Um, and it's gone up every year and gone up a lot. So... That combined with the push for these streaming services um, is a real competition for people's interest in things. And I don't know how that will hold up for these companies in a different kind of market than there is now. I think right now there's plenty of demand for going out. Um, but I don't, and that's what's sustaining them. So that's why like there's no adjustment. I think a lot of people compare 
movie theaters to watching at home. Uh, it's natural to think that way, but I don't think that's really the substitute that people think it is. Um, the movie theater business is attracting people because they want to go out and it really competes with, you know, um, experiences, eating out, things like that. So it's really as competitive on a weekly basis with your Dave and Buster's and your Top Golf and your um, restaurants and things like that as it is anything else for a core part of the movie going um, audience. And um, I think the difference with that versus like oil is there wasn't a big shakeout in this industry in terms of taking out a lot of supply. So mm-hmm. that's an issue. And then a reduction in CapEx, which there has been in these, uh, does lead to worse um, theater going experiences. So um, if we hadn't had COVID, Cinemark's theaters would be in better shape right now. Like they would have converted more to luxury loungers and they would have just kept up to date on some things. They would have changed some more food and beverage things and whatever. Marcus has done a lot of that even through COVID. Um, and obviously the others are really financially stressed. Uh, AMC and, and Reading and stuff are really financially stressed to be able to do that kind of thing. Um, so I think for now it's okay because we saw like the tight employment situation and people wanting to get back out and do things and everything, whether we're talking about theme park things or restaurants or whatever, there's a lot of demand for that. Marcus is even saying that their, um, their business, um, their business guest stuff. So their hotels that is driven by business travel is now back at the pre pandemic level. Now they mean that in like nominal dollars, they don't mean number of guests, but, um, so that recovery has happened too. So we've seen that big shift back to that. Um, in the long run, I don't know if you'll, if it'll be as good as I think there was pent up demand, right. For going back out. Mm-hmm. And I think they're going to benefit from that for a while, but I don't think they'll benefit from that forever. So unless, um, the studios are more accommodating in terms of supporting movies and theaters, um, then you might have a problem. And so it's mainly studio behavior that I'd be most worried about, mm-hmm. that they won't have the product that they need, you mm-hmm. know, in the long run. Um, but, but logically I feel that, you know, um, it's weird because I do, you know, when we talked about like Disney and stuff, I want to make clear that I wouldn't invest in the stock and I wouldn't invest in any of the streaming things right now because the situation is bad from a rivalry perspective. Their behavior is too competitive with each other and it's really self-destructive. And if it continues, you're going to have a really big problem. I mean, um, if you look at market share right before COVID, um, for Disney and Fox together, because Disney bought the Fox studio, which is now 20th, 20th Century Studios. Um, I kind of ran some numbers for that, trying to say, okay, what if Disney didn't have any movie business and, and movie theaters, right? How much would it take domestically to offset Disney's share of the revenue? So Disney generally would get about 50%. For some big movies and stuff, it might get a little bit more. But uh, of just ticket, you know, they don't share in concessions. So if you're going to a movie and paying $10 for ticket, Disney's getting $5 of that, right? Well, when I did the math on all this, what I came to was that basically Disney would need somewhat more than two out of every three households in America signing up for Disney Plus and keeping it all year, you know, to offset what they would lose in the movie theater um, business. And... Obviously, the idea has to be that they are going to keep a lot of that and they're going to have the benefit from streaming. But that just gives you an idea that for someone like Disney or something, they obviously can't replace this. 
and they really need both of them. Um, and I think that's what they want longer term, but it has been surprising to me how they haven't monetized their content the way that I would have expected. Um, so far though, it does seem like they are going back to really treating theaters the same way that they were before, but they are not treating the window and stuff after that, the way that they used to, they might change that. But what I expected originally, you know, when we talked about this, um, about what they've done differently than what I thought is I would have thought that Disney and streamers like that would have run these movies in theaters. And then after that, they would have given the movie to the uh, window, which would have gone to HBO or Netflix or other streaming things or, 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 you know, um, old linear TV stuff um, for a while and then put it on their service like the year after that. Right. So like the movie comes out in 2023 runs in theaters end of 2023 through 2024 it's on some sort of pay tv thing that isn't controlled by them then 2025 till forever you find it on their streaming service right that would have you know historically that's more makes more sense of what they would have done it's not what they're doing so the theater things come back to be that they're treating it the same way they were before but they're not using everything else um the way i would have expected they're not sharing as much with their rivals to get the best um, revenue over the life of their movie. And you think, well, why does that matter if we're talking about theaters? Well, it matters because then why make the movies? The, 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 the business model for making a $200 million movie uh, depends on a run in theaters, but then it also depends on exploiting that movie worldwide mm -hmm. through pay windows and things like that. In the early 2000s, um, it would have meant a lot of DVD sales and things like that. Um, that went away, but they made money through lots of other things. And if they're not going to do that anymore, it's a big difference. So like when we talked about uh, the Puss in Boots thing, right? So that everything that DreamWorks put out for a while was part of it when it was a public company, DreamWorks Animation, uh, it's now part of Universal. But when it was a public company, it had an output deal where those things went on to HBO no matter what. And that recouped a huge part of the investment. Um, at one point, I bet that they were paying about $60 million for each movie. Um, so you would get that no matter what, even if the movie was a bomb. And that extra $60 million is is just for the U.S. Um, domestic part. Around the world, they would be getting that kinds of things for, you know, the, the main um, uh, companies that would buy that in, you know, uh, all around the world. And when you add all that up, it's a really significant part of the business uh, and that's going directly to them. It's not being shared like with the theater. So it's the equivalent of being able to do another hundred some million in box office. Well, if box office is the same as it was before, but you're not getting this after theater um, uh, money for like the first year or so that it's out of theaters, then these movies don't make as much sense and their prices have to, their, their budgets have to come down or you have to put fewer of them out or you just don't do it and stuff. So the reason that it was run in theaters for a long time now has not been that it made all the money in theaters. This isn't like the, you know, in the 1940s, that's what the entire business was. And that's, you made everything from a, a run in domestic theaters mm -hmm. and it had no life after that. But for a very long time, certainly for the last 30 years, it's been based on sales originally of VHS and DVD and sales to cable. And, um, and without that, the movies don't make as much sense. And so do you keep supplying them to theaters, 
of these big budget movies and everything. And it's these bigger budget movies that are really attracting people to go to theaters in larger formats, you know, going to the IMAX and all those sorts of things. And um, you need the Marvel movies and the James Bonds and the Mission Impossible and the whatever, and they cost a lot of money to do, and the big animated movies, and they cost a lot of money. And the difference between just like breaking even and making good profit is often what that money they made after running in theaters was. Why do you think Disney has never gone into theaters in like a big way? I mean, could there be a case where Disney could buy a company like Cinemark to distribute their product or would that be more of a uh, regulatory issue? Well, theoretically, that's possible now. So Disney's entire run, um, it was never possible because Disney... um, didn't get into distributing its own movies until after the Paramount decision. Mm-hmm. So Disney used other distributors like RKO and ones like that. Um, and so it only got into being not just a producer, but a distributor. Um, the one I just mentioned, DreamWorks Animation never distributed its own movies. So the movies were distributed by others like Fox and, you know, then they were bought by Universal. Uh, Pixar used Disney to distribute its movies and then Disney bought it. So, um, Disney, uh, Walt Disney Productions originally was not a distributor and didn't become a distributor until after the Paramount decision in the 40s. And so until a couple of years ago, all um, these companies would have been unable to both um, make movies and to own theaters. You couldn't do both in the United States. Um, Other parts of the industry, like um, TV production years ago, was changed and they've all gone into that. So there was a time in the United States where you couldn't uh, if you were like ABC or something, you couldn't um, produce your own content for your own um, to show on your own network. You could um, make content for someone else. You know, you could as ABC make content and have sell it to CBS, but you couldn't make it for yourself and show it. Um, that changed, and legally that has changed, but no one's really tested it yet. Um, but yeah, so they were operating under like this uh, agreement, uh, the industry. For, you know, um, it was, let's see, uh, since the late 40s. Long time. Until just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you see that so, happening? I mean, could you make a case for yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, the most likely one is, uh, I, the most likely ones would be uh, one of the streamers buying a theater. So, like Amazon buying theaters or something, or Netflix. Um, that was there's some the that are rumor small. mill, right? In 2020, Amazon yeah. getting into theaters. Mm-hmm. The most likely ones would be um, certainly Netflix or Amazon could buy Reading. Now, Reading is a controlled company and has a lot of real estate stuff, but they have the Angelica Theaters and they have a few other circuits that are small, but they're more art house ones or concentrating a few places. That's possible. Um, that they might want to buy something like that. Um, Marcus is the, um, other than the big ones that you've heard of, Marcus is actually the next biggest. So um, most people around the country probably don't know about Marcus Theaters, but they do know about um, AMC, Regal, Cinemark. Well, Marcus is one down from that. And so there aren't a lot of ones that are of enough size to buy, but you could do it to get a lot of information and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that would make sense. The other issue is like working out how to get into theaters in if they view you as your competition and everything. Netflix and Amazon have this issue where they probably have some hostility in dealing with theaters, um, and that could be a problem. Um, but I also think that those companies would be the ones that would be most likely to be reviewed 
for possible antitrust things and all of that. And uh, they have a backlash against buying theaters. Um, and, and, you know, Disney obviously, uh, I think also could, it would be viewed pretty hostile, um, by a lot of people. Um, it would be bad press for them and stuff. The smaller, um, the smaller, uh, studios, uh, I don't know if they have enough product and stuff for it to make sense for them to get into it. Um, and I don't know that's a great idea to do it if you are, have easy access to getting your movies booked anyway. Um, if they want to get serious about getting their own stuff out there more and, um, creating more buzz for it, getting more information about things that aren't just, um, shown on their own stuff, then Netflix and Amazon, um, buying a theater would make sense. That would be the one that that would make sense, yeah. Because then you could get it in those theaters uh, guaranteed that you'd be able to get access to that. And um, it might improve your own production stuff so you'd learn better about how to produce things for other people and to sell product um, to others. Um, but in general, the thing with the industry is I don't think there's as much benefit to vertical integration as people think because there's a trade-off with it where um, most of them end up buying a lot of stuff from their rivals anyway. And also the best way to make money is to be willing to sell to them. Um, trying to monetize the whole um, chain yourself is not really the best way to make the most money. Although now with the streaming services, it's something that they're doing. Um, even though I don't think that that's like the best way to make the most money off of those movies. Um, so... I mean, like with the example with the networks for TV networks, uh, plenty of them, even though they had their own production arms, sold to others and they still bought content from others. They never like went fully vertically integrated into providing their own stuff and avoiding dealing with um, others. So, I mean, it's, it's something that they could do now. Mm -hmm. um, and it would be hard from a competition perspective to say like that it would be really harmful to others and everything. Um I mean, it's such, I mean, Mark, the market cap of Netflix, 162 billion, right? I was mm -hmm. about to ask you, I was gonna be like, well, I hate to be the one to say this or ask this, but do you think investors would view that as being something that's not great and be like, well, we don't want to be valued like a movie theater company. But I mean, I just don't think that would even be the case with the size of these streaming businesses now relative to like what Cinemark trades at or a Marcus or even an AMC. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're just so big compared to the theater businesses and like what they're trading at yeah. and the multiples and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think there's some things that would harm them in being able to deal. There's a lot of potential conflicts of interest and stuff that you have to deal with that way. Um, so I don't know if they'd want to get into all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, you definitely might harm your relationship with others by doing this. And I think there would be a lot of pushback for those particular ones like Netflix and Amazon and stuff. Cause they're seen as being so dominant in what they do. Um, but it is something that they could try to do. Amazon's tried to get into groceries and bought um, whole foods to do that. And, you know, they could possibly benefit from, better understanding of um, how to make content and stuff. If they owned a theater, their, their best bet would have just been to buy a studio, which they should have done, but they didn't. Um, and, and that would have been much better than trying to in-house produce the stuff that they've done. 
Um, you know, so buying a smaller studio would have made sense, you know, and, um, like Paramount is the size now of just their studio business, um, that it would make sense, but you know, it's attached to a bunch of other stuff, so it wouldn't be possible, but, um, Amazon did buy MGM, but it's not really much of a studio. It just gives them access to a big library and stuff. Mm -hmm. Got it. Cool. All right. We could jump into some questions, emails, uh, and some of these actually were from my DMS from Twitter. Uh, but I'm looking to have listeners send us emails to focuscompounding at gmail.com. I will pull them for the podcast and we'll go over them every single week. So somebody had asked, what is your process for generating new investment ideas? And we've been asked this many times, but sometimes the process changes over time. Um, but I'm just generally curious. And so is this individual, Jeff. What is your process for generating new investment ideas nowadays. I wish I had a better process. Um, I have a cork board, which I keep about probably 20 index cards right now on it, uh, ranking the next 20 things that I would, like if I had to buy stocks, what would those 20 stocks be, right? And so ordering them from one to 20. Um, and those are things that we don't own. So that's the stuff where I'd like to spend my most time focused on. And... Um, if it doesn't kind of get on that list, then it's not going to move up there. So it gets sort of compared to those other things. Um, I get emails from people and talk to them. Um, that hasn't historically turned up a lot of ideas. Um, I go through message boards. I read, you know, um, go through Value Investor Club has like, you can go through all ideas A to Z to look historically on any stocks that's ever been talked about. Um, and I'll read those, you know, from long ago uh, to familiarize myself with a company. Um, I do run screens. That's never been a source really for finding ideas, to be honest. Um, but I run them, you know. Um, and then sometimes there's, uh, it could be an industry or something where I look in a particular industry because uh, something's interesting to me about that. And I often, what I do is I always look for other publicly traded companies that are in the same business, that are peers, things like that. Um, and I, you know, like even where companies do a comparison for their compensation, uh, you know, when you read their proxy. Mm -hmm. So I read a lot of proxy statements, obviously, and um, I'll look at that. So if a company gets bought out, I'll look at what's included in the proxy for all the comparables. And I'll also even look at what the, the CL pay and everything is being tied to in terms of uh, who the consultant is talking about with um, who they compared it to. Cause then maybe I can turn up ideas that way um, that I haven't heard of. Uh, if I'm going to find a stock that I've never heard of before, it's more likely to be in another country because in the kind of category that we look at um, smaller, less well-known stocks and stuff um, I've generally, I, I know all the companies in there that would be of interest. So I've seen them before. Um, I've tried recently to read some things that were SPACs or whatever. Um, so they're completely new to me. Uh, but I wasn't that happy with management. I wasn't happy with what they were doing and any of that. And just, it didn't work out. You know, they aren't the right kind of companies, but it can be in that case, just an interesting product, um, interesting business model. And so I'll read about it for that reason. Um, with no idea of whether like I haven't looked at the financials or anything. Um, but those often haven't turned up great things. So were you spending time in SPAC land just because 
the vast majority of them are trading below where they spacked at? No, it's actually that there were some uh, interesting business models or good products or something that that were taken public that way. And so I was interested in it. Um, but I didn't like what I saw there. But it, it was like a, a good product that they had. Yeah. So, um, and sometimes that's brought to me by people. Um, sometimes you can find that. And we talk about it on QuickFS. Um, just like that the numbers looked really good. Um, but... Uh, and so some of the SPAC things came down a lot, right, mm-hmm. um, in price. and But it's mainly just because that's how companies have come public recently enough that there are things I haven't read about, you know, that I haven't read their 10K before. Um, companies that went public the traditional route, um, there's been less of them. And over time, you know, I just would have read their 10Ks by then. So I might not have read their most recent things, but I'd be familiar with the company. The only time in the U.S. lately that I found things I'm totally unfamiliar with that were kind of interesting in some way have been that they were SPACs. So you had said that you don't typically find new ideas from screens. However, a lot of the names you have purchased have come from screens, um, but you just may have learned about the businesses, I mean, five plus years ago, right? I mean, you had said, I mean, a lot of times Uh, when you're investing in a company, these are businesses that you've filed for some time right yeah the problem is i'd say not really what happens is the screens i run show turn up the same companies that i already know about um instead of that i found the company from the screen mm-hmm. to be honest i, I right. don't find that many companies from screens but yes i can screen for some things that tend to turn up the same companies that i already invest in yeah um i mean most things we're going to invest in are overlooked in some way and have been profitable for a while so it would be super rare for me to find something that hasn't been profitable for five straight years or something and buy it. Um, you know, with COVID and stuff, it could happen or some weird cyclical thing or whatever, but it's just not that common. And so the actual number of companies that would fall in that category is probably only a couple hundred um, that are really overlooked and stuff and also have been consistently profitable for a while might be something we're interested in. So the screens turn the same things up over and over again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then another question, when a company has a, concentrated customer base how much due diligence i'm guessing you meant to say is needed to exercise on the long-term financial stability of the top customers so spending time in micro cap or small cap land a lot of these times these companies could have high customer concentration maybe they have one asset that produces the vast majority of the cash flow Mm -hmm. something along those lines so how much uh you know time is needed how much due diligence is needed um, when you come across a business like that? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, the only ones that I can think of where I invest in companies with a really concentrated customer base, it was possible to find information on the customers pretty easily because they were large, well-known companies, good credit, things like that. Um, or they were in an industry where everyone was using the same sort of, um, you know, so like I've invested in things like aerospace or whatever. They're going to be the same ones all the time um, that everyone knows about uh, there. So I, if they're companies that I've, like customers have never heard of, it would be trickier. Um, there's some that I've turned down for that reason. There's uh, we talked about um, uh, someone had asked about like Generac or something like that. And I said, well, I've looked, I haven't looked at companies that make um, generators and, and um, 
things like that. But I have looked at companies that will buy them and, and refurbish them and stuff, but lease them out as a fleet to provide temporary power stuff. And, um, in one of those cases, I did not invest in a company, um, in that industry because I was concerned about the, the customers that they had, which were often governments and sometimes governments that don't pay their bills all that well. Um, and they seemed a lot weaker compared to rivals who dealt with better customers generally. Um, but that was more of like a case of wondering about why they're taking kind of the crummier customers than their competitor. Um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and most industries where I have a lot of concern about the financial stability of the top customers, uh, it's not that concentrated, right? So like there's many ones where I can think that their customers are, are have pretty shaky finances, but they just have so many different customers that it's just a different question. Mm -hmm. So um, I remember looking at like Amarim Cork, which sells to a lot of wineries and stuff, and they have they write off like a lot of receivables and stuff, but they have a very um, broad customer base. It's not high concentration in that at all. Next question. We talked about net nets last week. When buying a basket of net nets, would you screen for quality, low leverage, et cetera, or just buy the basket? Um, I would screen for basically credit quality. Like I would look to see how likely is it that this company doesn't go under, um, under any circumstances I can think of. Uh, that's mainly like business quality, you could say, or like the safety of the business. Um, major things to look for are a very large ratio of current assets versus total liabilities. So that's in a sense, low leverage. Um, because if you think about it, if a company has $11 per share in current assets, $10 in liabilities and trades at 50 cents, people say, well, that's a net net, which is true. But if they have $10 in current assets, $1 in um, total liabilities, and they sell at $8, um, that might be more attractive actually, because um, the, the ratio between the two is, is so big. Um, because you're, you know those two things are gonna move around over time. So things can stop being a net net because the current assets go down, total liabilities go up, you know, so a bigger room for that is fine. Um, in terms of performance, probably just buying a basket will do as well or better because you'll hit some things that might have really big upside. Um, but I don't know that people will stick with that. And that's certainly not the kind of approach that I use. So I pick out individual ones that I like better because of the, the business. The business has been around a long time. I kind of know what it's doing and it seems like uh, it'll do okay. And so usually that means most years it makes a profit. You could look at the last 10 years, last 20 years. How many years does it have an operating profit? How many years does it have positive cash flow from operations? Even when things aren't net nets that people talk to me about, a major issue is very few years where they have positive cash flow from operations, whereas I like to have that number be positive almost every year. Um, if you think about it, if you have a net net and it almost always has positive cash flow from operations, it's very hard for it to go broke. Mm -hmm. Um, what's it going to do? Spend too much on CapEx, you know, mm -hmm. um, because it's already in a strong liquid position with low liabilities and now it's generating cash flow from operations most of the time. So, um, they're not perfect examples, but net nets or near net nets that we mentioned before were like, um, I think we mentioned like Herco, Stratic, which isn't really a net net, but it's close in that kind of thing. And uh, it has similar similar things to that. Although, you know, it, it has these joint ventures and stuff, so I wouldn't call it net net. Um, and then uh, it's really a Jordanian company, uh, not a US company. It has a Hong Kong office too, but there's a company called Jerish, 
which is a mm. textiles um, type thing. Uh, it does like it makes clothes for um, you know big brands that you. Oh, Aren't they name brands? Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It uses like uh, I, I believe it uses labor from around the world, uh, not Jordanians, and um, houses them in Jordan and makes clothes um, that way. Uh, but so I just would warn that's not really a U.S. company, and so be a little careful about that because it shows up as if it's like in New Jersey or something, but like that's not really where the company's operations are or where their offices are. Um, uh, that's a controlled company too, to be a warning on that one. Um, but that one, and I believe Herco, um, I think they pay dividends. I mean, I, Jerish definitely pays dividends re- recently. Herco, I think, had a history of paying dividends. Um, you know, and and, um, and some of those have been around for a very long time too. So, and then also just knowing those industries, right? Mm-hmm. Um, those aren't good industries. So that's like auto parts. Um, uh, I think Herco would be, say it's computerized machine tools or something like that. It's a machine tools, a cutting stuff and things. Um, and uh, and then with, with Jerish, that's, you know, contract manufacturing for clothing. Um, a lot of net nets are contract manufacturers, um, electronics assembly, um, you know, textile, manuf- uh, you know, like, um, clothing, making clothes is basically an assembly job, you know? Mm-hmm. So things where you are more an assembler than a manufacturer are tend to be much more likely to become a net net. Um, and that's, you know, these companies that there's a few in the U S or they have operations in the U.S. and Mexico, which are the equivalent of sort of your like Foxconn type stuff, um, but for the U.S. on a very small scale for some things, and they can fall into being a net net sometimes. Um, but a long history of some profitability is really helpful. The problem with some of them that you'll notice uh, that I think people avoid is they have no history of ever having a really good year, and so that's how you get a really big. Um, make a lot of money in a net net. So actually the kind of thing that would be a great net net if they became one are the semiconductor companies, your microns and things like that. If they actually fell to the point where they're a net net, that would be really good because that industry is so cyclical and inventory is such a big part of it um, that in a good year, they'll make a lot of money and they'll suddenly be valued on earnings and the stock will go shooting up and you'll make a lot of money. That's like your Berkshire uh, Hathaway that Buffett was buying into because if he could just get a good year or two, a couple good years in a row in textiles, you'd suddenly make a lot of money. Um, and, and that's cause like your gross margins move around a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, some of the others, it, it doesn't as much. So, um, but they won't go out of business and you know, maybe they will, um, close down some things, sell them off, uh, rearrange how they run stuff. Um, but basically things that you would be comfortable lending money to, I would say. That's how I always think about it. If you'd be comfortable lending money to them, think like you're a banker and um, uh, with a net net, and then you get the upside. And so if the safety is that there's barely any liabilities and there's no financial liabilities and um, and there's all these cash receivables inventory and they generally generate some cash flow, um, it's like making a loan that you think will work out, except you also get this upside. And that's really this, the secret of how net nets work is that you're, you're actually in a position that's like a lender because there's not a lot of anything senior to you in these structures, you know? Um, and, uh, yet you get this upside. So it's, it's as if you're able to make like a loan against receivables and inventory and stuff. Um, but you also got these warrants or this payoff of some kind if things got better. Um, and that's kind of how it works. 
Mm-hmm. So that's what I would look for is basically what things you think aren't going to go broke and have a longer history of, of especially cash flow from operations and operating income being uh, profitable. Um, and you can look at that in like quick FS for say the last 20 years or something. Um, honestly, I, I want to see like at least seven of the last 10 years or something where those numbers have been positive uh, operating income and cash flow from operations. A lot of things people bring me are less than half the time. And some they're way less. And a lot of times it's focused just in the last few years. The other thing I always mention to check is um, check how high retained earnings are because that's right on the balance sheet and you can see it. Um, companies that are trading at about retained earnings or lower or where retained earnings is um, basically how they have all of their um, net current assets. Um, I like that better than if this is a company that was um, that the current assets come from their stock going public. So your biotech companies and things like that, if they, um, if they decide to shut down and liquidate and whatever, that that's great if you have that catalyst in place. But absent that, remember that the only reason they have that cash on the balance sheet or whatever is because they went public and someone gave it to them. It's not because they sold product and earned money to get there. Um, if you want Ben Graham type net nets, they all would fall into the category of they're funded from retained earnings. So the company has a history of profitability and the easiest way to check that is like retained earnings is a very big item on the balance sheet and it's usually going to be really close to the market cap. Um, and all the companies I think I mentioned, it's it's something like that. Like it's fairly close. I don't know if it's 70%, you know, retained earnings is 70% of the market cap or something or 100%. But basically their their net current assets have all been produced from earnings that they had at some point and plowed back into the business. But of course, that means they're probably a bad business, mm-hmm. um, like historically, or at least there's very bad expectations for the future. Because um, otherwise, you know, you're valuing the future of the company at less than their accumulated past stuff that they earned. Um, The biggest thing, of course, is to look out for frauds and self-dealing and all that kind of stuff to make sure you're well protected that way. But again, if you're thinking like a lender, that's like some of the first stuff you'd think about, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you think from the bottom up. Now, the hard question is, when do you sell? Right. Is this like a buy in the balance sheet and sell in the income statement? Right. You had said the best part about that net is eventually... It could get valued on the earnings, at least the way that Warren Buffett would look to do it, like with Berkshire. I mean, do you have a systemized approach to selling? Is it just sell when it's not a net net anymore? Is it, you know, kind of wait and see and use your judgment? What's the playbook yeah, for that? Yeah, I mean, it It depends on what works for you if you're going to do this all the time. I think if you get into doing net nets, you should think about what is the process you can use for your whole investment career that if net nets exist, you're going to repeatedly do this. Um, I would say check in once a year and if it's at like one and a half times or something, um, you could sell. Um, I wouldn't sell during the first year for tax reasons and stuff. It's just easier to use one year. So if you want to take a loss, you can sell a little bit before one year. If you want to take a gain, you can sell a little bit after one year. But I also just don't want people to be thinking all the time, should I sell this or not? Um, You can certainly look at every quarterly report, but I do think for net nets, if you bought them the right way, so they were safe there should be very little risk that they would go bankrupt in a year or something or in a year of deteriorate so much that they look like they're about to go bankrupt in another year. Um, So I think once a year to check in with them. And as long as they're still a net net, then I would say, hold on to them or buy more or whatever. If they're not a net net, then you can make the decision of whether you want to sell them. Um, And uh, you know, 
I would say that you don't have to sell it some predetermined thing like one and a half times or whatever that for the right for a good company that's still incredibly cheap um for a bad company who knows um but still focusing on the net net part of it is good especially for knowing like how safe it is and all of that um so but the you know obviously from a money making perspective if you don't pay more than one times so let's say you're not buying at two thirds of net current assets, but you're just paying, let's say 99% or less. So you're buying when it is uh, basically a net net. Um, then it would make sense to think about 1.5 times net current asset value to sell. Uh, just because in your mind, you can think about that clearly that you go, okay, well, I could own this for a few years and sell it on average if I do this every time and I could get a market beating return, right? Obviously in one year I make 50% or something, but even if it takes a few years, you know, I could still do fine. Um, so I think that's a fine way of looking at it. Um, than having to make the decision any other way. Um, very occasionally you might come across something where you realize it's a better business than you thought. And, um, you know, there've been cases where I've had that, but, um, generally that would be companies that have a lot of cash or something, not so much that it's receivable as inventory and not that they're in a really bad industry. So those are really niche things. Um, the ones that I gave examples of, those are basically bad industries for the most part. They're not terrible companies in good industries or something. Um, they're just really tough industries. Um, and so those companies probably you'd want to be careful about because, you know, the cycle will change or whatever. So at the point where you think things are looking really good, it's about to have a year or two that could be really bad. You know, just like read those Berkshire um, actually read capital allocation, that book, mm -hmm. um, you know, after he bought Berkshire, it had a couple good years, but it had a pretty bad years for most of the last 10 and all of that. And then didn't have some great years ahead of it. Um, most of the ones I mentioned that are close to being net nets now are actually better than Berkshire, um, was when Buffett bought into it in terms of as a business, their last 10 years results and stuff are better. Their capital allocation is not necessarily better. There's a few where the capital allocation is not bad, but Berkshire's capital allocation was great. And that's why he probably bought into it is because it was closing things down, getting out of businesses and then using that money to buy back stock. And the main problem with net nets is that they don't do that. So um, if they're doing good capital allocation, which is super rare um, or someone's going after them to take them over or something, then you might want to consider, well, do I want to own this for longer and whatever, but that's sort of like good positive things are happening with it um, that are other than just the business, right? That it's like they're, if they're liquidating stuff and buying back stock, um, then they could be really changing to be better than net in the future. But if they look the same as when you bought them, you know, I'd revisit once a year and you might want to sell if it goes up 50% or something. Have you ever been involved in a net net that was acquired in the open market by a different business? Yes. Uh, no, no, not really a different business. They were management buyouts basically. Mm. Did they yeah. buy it at? I guess uh bad price. Yeah. For Terrible for, price, for yeah. a good price for for them. Bad price for shareholders. Yeah. But I mean I I've been in things that were up 100% and were a bad price. Mhm. Mm so. Yeah. Got it. Okay, so we have a snap judgment that was sent in CCF Chase Corporation, family business mm -hmm. for three generations. Individuals and insiders own 13% of a 900 million dollar market cap business, 30% return on tangible capital, 10 year average, approximately 38% median, 10 year gross margin, and 16% free cash flow, price 10 to 12 times free cash flow. 
uh, pro forma for the recent acquisition. Stock is flat slash down over the last five years while revenue and free cash flow grew. Their annual reports have a lot of reference to passing costs and inflation to consumers. Mm-hmm. Have you looked at this business before? It always shows up on the screens as like a high quality business. Price to sales, 2.6 times. 10-year CAG around revenue, eight time, or 8%. Um, looked pretty high quality. If you look at the return of asset capital, it does bounce around a little bit. But from like mm-hmm. the stability of margins, uh, stability of operating margin, and gross margin. I mean, yeah, it looks fine. Industry chemicals, they manufacture... And sale of protective materials for various applications in North America, Asia, the Middle East, Europe, and internationally. It operates through three segments, adhesives, saleants, and additives, industrial tapes, and corrosion protection, and waterproofing. Hmm. Um, any so, thoughts on the business? Yeah, so it's interesting. One it is listed always as specialty chemicals. This is chemicals. But what you just mentioned is it's sealants, adhesives, um, and anti-corrosive stuff. And things. So it's actually quite different than what you think of, especially chemicals. Um, it is cyclical because of the markets that it serves, I think. Um, it, I, I think you can get information on that from like the annual report that people can look at. Um, it is to me often not super cheap considering um the you know returns on capital and all of that are good but they're usually not leveraged up um we can look at the long term chart on the company yeah it's it's done quite well i mean yeah. it's been since i mean yeah hunter bagger in that territory since, mm-hmm. you know, late 90s, early yeah. 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think much of the last five years or something, it, it hasn't grown all that much. Um, and it's often been at like 20 times earnings or something along those lines, I would say. Um, so this, you know, for this market and stuff, that's fine. And it might be better than owning a, a bigger stock. Um, so, yeah, I don't have any problems with it. And it looks interesting. Um, I mentioned, you know, that I keep a list of a bunch of companies. This is beyond a list of 20 stocks to look at, but it's probably not been near the top of that list usually because of, um, price. And to some extent, because of trying to figure out exactly what they do and how well I can understand it. Um, but it sounds pretty good what they do. Uh, we can look at, I mean, they covered most of the numbers there. Um, I believe it's mostly a volume issue from my memory of why there's cyclicality in it. Not that there's a huge difference in the gross margins um, usually, but you have that information in front of you. Um, yeah, I just think that some, t- some years there's just kind of weaker volume in terms of demand for the industries that they serve. Their gross profit is pretty stable, usually their margins. Mm-hmm. Sounds like they went um, through uh, a merger or they acquired somebody, something like that. So maybe the business their... will look a lot different going forward. Because what do you say? He's a performer from the recent acquisition. Oh, so he's including the free cash flow probably from the new business for his okay. valuation. Um, yeah. Uh, 
and I believe the, let's see, we can have some idea of like um, turns. What's there? Let's see, their, their EBIT is about, the median EBIT, it says there's like 19%. Is that right? What does it say? Yep, 19%, 18.7. We'll use 19. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and return on investment is, uh, return on equity is like um, 17% or something. So there's about one turn. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Probably. Um, yeah, so uh, let's look at the balance sheet to see how much of it is intangible. He said that um, returns on invested capital on tangible is like 30% or something, right? So there must be quite a bit of intangibles there. 30% um, return on tangible capital, 10-year average. Right. Yeah. So where does it list our intangibles down there? Um, yeah. How big is the intangible item? 174 million. And then you have goodwill okay. of 176 and the total million. Balance sheets. Okay. So 350 million or something, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have uh, what is total assets? 643 million. Okay. Yeah. And so recently they've been making what, like, um, What's your recent, uh, well, let's go to cash flow statement, actually. Um, what are our recent years for cash flow from operations? Uh, 2018 onward, 46 million, 50 million, 56 million, 61 million, and then 35 million in 2022, which really was mm -hmm. a and is there much capital. capital. No, like not yeah. at all. Um, yeah, so it's pretty good. Um, it's not amazing, but it's actually the kind of business that over time can give you really good returns. So, so what we're looking at is like cash flow from operations divided by net tangible assets is kind of what I was asking those questions for. So, um, for a really small business, you might use like gross profit divided by net tangible assets if you don't think they have enough scale yet and all of that. But, um, you want that number to be pretty big. It is high here and it's high enough that if they keep reinvesting, and they grow over time that their stock can really outperform, especially if it's, if you buy it cheaper. Um, however, it's not so amazing that it's like these businesses we talk about that take barely any assets and have these great returns and stuff. This is a kind of business that um, maybe it's, as you're saying around 30% or whatever, maybe it's more like 20% or, you know, in terms of after-tax cash returns versus tangible assets or something. But even if it's only that, that's fine. There's no reason that you need a lot better than that. Um, so sometimes those can be the, the best kinds of stocks to buy because um, everyone looks at the ones that have like infinite returns, right? Mm -hmm. um, if we look at the overview, we can get an idea of how um, much it's grown recently. Uh, last 10 years, right, it's grown like 8% a year. Yeah, revenue. Assets have grown 11%, but yeah. cash flow 12%, EPS 16%. Mm -hmm. And then how much has it acquired in the past, do you know? So Do they see anything about that on the balance sheet? Yeah. On the uh, cash flow statement? The, I, I mean, 2015, it's part of, I would say it's part of their business model, right? Um, 2015, uh, 33 million, 2017, 26 million, 2018, 71 million, 2021, 31 million. And then I'm guessing last year, 249 million. Mm -hmm. um, and then can we just look at the income statement or whatever so I can have a yearly list of the shares outstanding? You can switch to thousands, thousands or whatever. Yeah, it's gone from yeah. eight point eight million in two thousand thirteen to nine point three million in two thousand twenty two. So not crazy. I've seen worse. 
Yeah. So the only question that I would have there is, is the growth coming from acquisitions, right? Um, cause we saw that with the assets going up, you know, cause that's not doing just tangible assets. He's using other ones. So is it possible that the returns on the acquisitions aren't that amazing? Um, so that would be the thing that I would worry about it. You know, obviously if it was growing all organically and it had the kinds of returns versus net tangible assets that we just talked about, it would be great. Um, but we know that it's acquiring because it's had shares go up a little over time. It's had spent cash on acquisitions, mentioned acquisition. Um, and we saw there that like assets went up more than um, revenue. And so if they're buying all of that, a lot of that growth, then it's a question of what the returns on that are. And usually the returns on that are going to be a lot lower than mm -hmm. 20 to 30 percent returns on your tangible uh, investment um, because it's just hard to do deals that make. Yeah. And is this because you're betting on predictability right into the future and it's hard to you know, predict if they're going to be able to successfully continue to acquire companies is that why i mean that's why you had said if this was all from organic that would be great but i mean how would you zero in on trying to judge their past acquisitions and try to get comfortable with uh you know any potential future acquisitions they would make yeah i mean you'd have to talk to management read the annual report things like that there's not a lot more you could do um the the issue for bringing that up is also price honestly because um you know, if if growth was as low as 8% over 10 years and a lot of it was acquired, then we're getting into kind of a potentially, not that you're going to like lose a lot of money, but potentially dangerous area in terms of are we overpaying, right? Um, because we're paying premiums to book. We're paying premiums to um, maybe compared to the market, not all that much of a premium for earnings. But, you know, these aren't value type prices. Even if we go by things like EV to EBITDA and whatever, these are very normal prices um, that investors pay. And so we need better returns on our capital than most companies get. Um, and the tangible part of it, the existing business has it. The question is whether these acquisitions are going to get you better returns. So I don't see a lot of risks except that if we're getting this a lot from acquisitions and we're paying 20 times earnings or whatever, um, then we're pushing where we might get mediocre results, you know, market type results from this over time. Um, the company's still pretty small. What's the market cap on it? 934 million. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I don't think that you're going to see it, you know, uh, I'm sure we could look at like the 20 year numbers or whatever, but we're probably not going to see it look like it did in that chart of being like a hundred bagger um, going into the future. If so much of it's going to have to come from acquisitions and we have a starting price like this, but let's see if whether the price was ever better. Sure. We could pull up. Uh, do you want to see the ratios page for the market cap or what do you want to see? Sure. We can start with the price. You know, what, what kind of prices did it trade at in the early two thousands? Early, so we got back to 2003, $50 million market cap. And, uh, you know, they went 62 million, 55 million, 65 million, 143 million, and scaled all the way up to where they're at today. But in 2003, they were a $50 million company. And the valuation metrics like price to earnings, price to book, price to sales, what kind of things do we see there? Very favorable. So we got, you know, 9.5 times, 13 times. 11.6, 10 10.6, 14, 11.7. Uh, we're definitely at the higher end of its long-term past. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Is that more justified because it's <laughs> it's bigger? Uh, I don't know, right? I don't know. Maybe companies that are microcaps could be a little bit more off the beaten path. Do you receive a higher multiple if the market thinks you are going to acquire things? But I would say I think that's you have true. a higher multiple just because you're bigger. Mm-hmm. I mean, fifty million dollar companies have low multiples. Billion dollar companies have higher multiples. Sure. Usually, you see this if the company even looks the same. I mean, we could look at like the return on invested capital, the margins, and things. Have we seen a lot of change since the early two thousands to now? Not too much. I mean, I guess it's gone up maybe a little bit, um, but not even. I mean, in two thousand three, I'll just read across for return on tangible capital employed. 21.9%, Twenty one point eight percent, eighteen point five percent, eighteen point five percent, thirty five point nine percent, thirty seven point eight, fourteen point eight, twenty five point eight, twenty five point nine, twenty eight point nine, twenty nine point seven, thirty two point six, forty one in 2003, right? Mm-hmm. And then can we look at just growth in terms of revenue or something like that? Yeah, so like a revenue growth year over year number? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's been pretty... Uh, so there's only a few years where it has declined, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on a year over year basis. And actually, recently is the only time we had multiple back-to-back years of declines, right? Only time on this uh, data yeah. set, yeah. Has it been slowing down, speeding up, staying the same, do you think, over the full 20-year period? Kind of looks the same. Like, they have some blowout years, for sure. But then they'll have a year where it's, you know, 0% growth or 3.7% or, you know, 125 And it, it kind of looks a lot like uh, 2003, early in the early 2000s, just mm-hmm. kind of some big blowout years and then some great years and some okay years. So, I mean, it looks like a better business than something like J&J Snack Foods when I looked at it and, and owned it like, you know, 20 years ago or so. Um, but it reminds me of that in some ways of what we're talking about in that you had a very low market cap. It over 20 years went to be a much more premium priced um, business, mm. but actually the, and it acquired things along the way, just as this company is. But for the most part, um, you didn't see radically different um, margins, returns on capital, uh, even the speed of growth or anything like that it just got re-rated over a long period of time. And uh, that re-rating, you know, if you think about it, if a company grows um, sales three to five times or something over a long period of time, and then also gets revalued up three times, let's say in terms of like multiples, um, that combination makes it go from being a nano cap stock really to being um, a billion dollar stock, mm-hmm. right? And then from that point on, it gets treated much more like a serious business. Um, you know, investors take it seriously and price it versus everything else. They price a billion dollar business often not that different than a $10 billion business, but often a lot different than a $100 million business. Yeah, I mean, even looking at the payout ratio of the dividend, I mean, I just highlighted the whole data set from 2003 to the present and the average it spits out 226 and if you look in the earlier years, I mean, it was kind of around there. Mm-hmm. Looks very interesting to me. Um, I, you know, a major part of your long-term returns, though, even pretty long-term returns in stocks does come from your multiple expansion or contraction. Mm-hmm. And so you're now dealing with something which is priced much more like the market, whereas in very early years from a long time ago, it was priced lower. Mm-hmm. Um 
And so just keep that in mind uh, because if the business doesn't really improve, the numbers that we're seeing in terms of like revenue growth and everything aren't amazing. But even at a price of 25 times earnings or something, let's say, let's say like 25 times free cash flow or, you know, um, that, you know, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Um, you could still have a lower double digit type return over time, even if the multiple contracted a little bit while you owned it. Um, now what was said in that email though, was that they have a recent acquisition and that taking that into account, um, it's cheaper than it appears. Mm -hmm. So, and is that captured on the balance sheet stuff that we saw? Um, cause they paid cash for that or there was a large cash item shown in the cash flow. Yeah, I believe it was, uh, reflecting the balance sheet already. Cause I did see it on the cash flow statement that they acquired something, uh, 248 million. So we can see they took on long-term debt to fund it. Is that right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Or is that something else that we're seeing there? Okay. No, that's correct. Okay. And how much long-term debt is it? 180 million. Okay. Um, you make a good point though. I just really wanted to expand on this really quick. So if you take, look at the market cap, right? And if you look at in 2003, it was a $50 million market cap. And then let's go to, and of course these numbers probably aren't exact and I am cherry picking, but if you look at mm -hmm. the last year that it was a micro cap where, you know, in what year is this? 2015, it was 363 million. And then the following year it was basically 600 million. So I'll put that I guess, I don't know what the definition of a micro cap is today. It changes sometimes with inflation stuff, but I mean, what do you think? Mm -hmm. I usually think like up to 400-ish million for a micro cap. Okay. Okay. Uh, the average PE was 12 and a half times. And then let's say when it graduated to 600-ish million and above, the average PE is 23.5 times. So the, the PE basically, the average basically doubled mm -hmm. yeah. as it got bigger. And if there's a lot of, right. And if there's a lot of insider ownership and there has been for a long time and they haven't really issued all that much in shares over time, um, then the actual amount of float might not be that big. And it might take people a while to get interested in the stock. Um, this is pretty classic example of the kinds of good quality small businesses that as they grow bigger, don't really become a lot higher quality or anything like that, but they just get a lot of recognition that they lacked in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about all sorts of businesses that are small and people always worry, well, will they ever get more liquid? Will people ever awarded a higher PE or whatever? Well, it, this one, you know, was growing at a rate where it could more than double the business every 10 years, let's say. Um, and if you keep doing that for a while, then um, that gets recognized and that gets rewarded with a much higher um, recognition and P ratio and everything. Um, this one's been public for a long time, I would assume, right? Is this on the American? Do you remember? Uh, I think it was, let's see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so does it give information about, uh, and the chart that you had went back to the early nineties, right? Because that's how far back OTC markets go. Yep. looks like, uh, 1992. Yeah, it just takes it to the early net. Yeah. That's how far back they go. So it's been public since before then. Um, so this is the typical, this another. is typical though, of like small companies, right? Though, how it could take from 2003 to, you know, if you want to use 08, well, really, I mean, you could use 2008 post 2008, 2000, you know, nine, 10, 10, whatever to go from like a 50 million market cap to just over 
a hundred million dollar market cap. And then basically within the same amount of time as it gets bigger, it goes up eight or nine times. Mm-hmm. You know, so basically yeah. it takes long, takes a long time to double business continues on and then it goes up multiples as it gets bigger. Yeah. And it, it works out really well as a stock because you have an underlying good return. You get some dividend, as we said, right? Oh, across that whole time they paid a dividend. And um, that combined with the revenue growth means that the return without any expansion in the multiple and stuff is actually very competitive with the market. Um, it's very competitive with just long-term returns in the market at all because, I mean, we can't figure out the exact we could if we look carefully, but it's hard to figure out the exact dividend yield each year. But if you take the dividend yield and you add it to the like revenue or earnings per share growth each year and everything, um, you're getting numbers that are giving you very close to like double digit type returns anyway. And then the, the, the outperformance from it really comes from the multiple expansion, but you didn't need the multiple expansion just to keep pace with the market over all that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, it's classic of those kinds of nano caps that are actually high quality businesses and have some growth possibilities. You need some growth that they keep reinvesting and, um, they pay some dividend. So that takes care of some of that. And then they're not really interested in borrowing a ton of money or issuing a lot of stock or something like that. So that kind of limits how fast they can grow. But why I asked about if it was on the American and how long they've been public and everything is this is a lot of the stocks that we found over time have been looking like this. And before more recent years, there's just a lot more companies that were like this. This is the kind of thing that often disappeared when we talked about Sarbanes-Oxley and all that um, because it's a company that continued to grow over a long period of time, um, grew at a a strong rate, but not um, relying on a lot of outside capital for stuff. And, you know, wasn't backed by venture capital things and all of that. It was internally funded from a small scale to just growing over time. And, um, this is a lot of the stuff that's kind of missing from the market that there hasn't been enough of these things going public in the last 20 years or so. So when a business like this is going to acquire a different business and it's trading from his email at 12 to 13 times earnings on like a pro forma basis, would you think about it, how you would value a spinoff and be like, okay, this is actually cheap and interesting today, um, like on a pro forma basis or do you think when a business acquires another one, you're more inclined to kind of wait and see what happens uh, with like, uh, you know, the business? Um, I would be interested. I mean, especially if they did it with debt. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, they're, they're treating shares their shares like gold, shared. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I'd be interested. Uh, but, you know, I'm probably not going to get a lot of information except what management tells me because this is a very specialized sort of industry where I don't have a lot of insight into it. Um, but you have some past history of them buying things, I guess, but this is quite a large acquisition relative to the size of the, uh, what the company was before. Um, so, I mean, we could, yeah. Let's see the close on the acquisition of new Sarah solutions. Yeah, I mean, they've been around for eight to five years, Jeff. It's in an industry that mm-hmm. you like, right? Chemicals could be good. Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah, and I wouldn't even... I mean, I think this is less correctly classified as chemicals. I just don't know if there's another 
thing to classify it as. Like when you said it, I always think of it as, you know, adhesive sealants, things like that, which is, you know, not exactly the same thing that I normally think of even with specialty chemicals. But specialty chemicals is, is you know, uh, there's several companies that have been very successful for decades as stocks that are in specialty chemicals that are small companies. Um, yeah, you have the investor presentation. Yeah, there's, uh, let's see, they probably have their pro forma in here. That uh, PR said that they purchased them from a private equity company. Let's see, transaction overview, SK Partners. 250 million, purchase price 11.7 times, EBITDA. How much were they trading in the market, EBITDA? This says 12.4 today. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. They use debt. Net leverage 1.2 times, adjusted EBITDA. They expect significant free cash flow. Yeah. Um, I mean, we are running into a bit of a problem with any of these where, like, for instance, look at the business description of Nucera. Um, It's going to be hard for me to know a lot about a manufacturer of highly differentiated polymers. I mean, how many different SKUs do they Um, have? Something like this. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Used by 700 leading consumer products, personal care coatings, and mm -hmm. industrial companies. Yep. Um, They also, you know, the next year or something might not be great for this business in general, not just what they acquired, but the business uh, chase in general, you know, so that might have people less excited about it as investors. I don't care that much about it because there isn't a ton of volatility. Like it's not like they're earning overly high levels now, probably. So the pro forma has the combined companies, 390 million in revenue, 98 million in adjusted EBITDA, uh, which is a 25% margin, CapEx, 6 million free cash flow conversion, 94%. What do they use for free cash uh, flow? What do they say with the maintains? Ongoing financial flexibility. Chase will be mm-hmm. modestly levered, 1.2 times net leverage post acquisition with a clear path to deleveraging quickly. Uh, their estimated net leverage was to go from 1.2 times to under 0.6 times within the next 12 months, which I think they actually were doing that. I noticed that when we were looking at the balance sheet. So on a quarterly okay. basis, they had 180 million and now where they currently sit, 165 million. So they're paying it down. Mm-hmm. Is it short-term money that they're borrowing? I think I saw there that they mentioned Revolver. Yep, Revolver, 180 million. And then they okay. balance sheet cash, 70 million. Mm-hmm. But then maybe they change that to long-term debt because we're seeing long-term debt because we have a balance sheet that's more recent than this presentation, maybe? That is correct, assuming that QuickFS is pulling it correctly. Correct. We don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, that would make sense that maybe they do the acquisition by borrowing money that's available to them now and making the purchase, and then they try to find a long-term solution for borrowing, but maybe not. They don't mention that here. Um, let's see. What is this financing? Can you see that if you go up one slide? Yeah, financing to be funded with availability under existing revolving credit facility and cash on the balance sheet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I would rather, you know, um, a longer term loan or something like that. Um, Normally, when you're acquiring a business, uh, especially of this size relative to yourself, but, you know, Mm -hmm. um, 
So on a pro form, oh, any sort of financial risk yeah. on a pro forma basis, about a hundred million in EBITDA is what they think. Okay. And what's the company's EV now about a billion? What is it? Uh, yeah, a billion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 10, 11 times. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's all good, but you know, most it's good. But most companies throughout most of history that are even, you know, much bigger companies than this, 10 to 11 times EBITDA is not unusual, right? We've got, you know, short-term rates of 4% or whatever, which is means a fairly normal interest rate environment compared to what it's been historically. So it just doesn't strike me as a super cheap stock. Mm-hmm. Um, what did I say they paid for it? Like 11 times EBITDA for the business? Okay. Um it's well they have it right under the let's see uh yeah the overview right mm-hmm. they said it they are not yeah adjusted EBITDA last 12 months 21 million for the company okay yeah 11.7 uh, times is what they paid 250 million dollar purchase price so yeah which is fine but uh obviously that gets to the issue of like what your returns on capital will be in the future. If you keep buying things like this, obviously they're paying a big premium over book to buy something like this, just as their own stock would be. Um, another question is like, does this, is this very similar to if they bought back their own stock? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I have no problem with companies buying other companies if they get results that are similar to buying back their own stock. But when we look at this, do we say, well, this would be pretty similar to if they just bought back a lot of their own stock. Um, but I also prefer a little bit of leverage, um, to having none as a shareholder, if it's going to be like two times or something like that, you know, um, for a predictable business generating a lot of cash flow, I certainly don't mind two, three times EBITDA of debt, um, to do acquisitions like this. And, you know, and, and of course they're doing this to go, let's say to two times, that's EBITDA or whatever of the combined company and then quickly to pay it down. So even on average, we're talking about much lower than that. So it is better for the common stock to have some leverage constantly being applied to it. Yeah. I mean, it looks good. Mm-hmm. The company's always looked good to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if the acquisition is all that cheap and I don't know if the stock itself is all that cheap. I'm not saying it's expensive. I'm just saying that, you know, 12 times EBITDA or something is not really a value stock exactly. I mean, I'd say lots of people listening to this probably haven't heard of this company before, right? That's probably true. Yeah. 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 Yeah, like I said, um, I mean, it's on my board. Mm. So I, I said that I have a board with probably 20 stocks or something. It's on the board and it's not at the lowest end of it. So, Well, very good. Very good. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Make sure you send your questions or individual stocks you want us to look over to focuscompounding at gmail.com. Make sure you hit the subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching us. And of course, if you're interested in learning more about our money management services, you can reach out to me at andrew at focuscompounding.com. And thank everybody so much for tuning in with both of us. And we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.